Welcome to this Christmas edition of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. The Circle This space formed by gathering is unmindful of social grading, repelling all attempts at control, and when held with intention is the embrace of invention. It echoes in archaeological rings, ancient signs from before the kings, when once we trusted its magic Within Stanton Drew and Callanish, Stonehenge, the solstice sun's rising kiss. An easily convened circularity that the managers of linearity deform into a triangle with a self-appointed pinnacle that they sit at, shrewd and cynical. But this is the great O of wonder, not to be exploited for plunder, entered with listening and speaking, never both, never simultaneously, as the soul arises spontaneously. Sit in the circumference of infinity, submit to a way that yields acuity, a vision that each can lay claim to, Their presence in the circle, a harvest, the bounty of being truth's hearth-guest. I would defend this space with my life, when those who scorn its sway are rife. So how to hold its magic against those whose brands are their banners unfurled, claiming it is not part of their real world? Perhaps we don't have to defend. Perhaps we just have to let it befriend the echoing spiral of our life's course. And then, when the circle is done, those remaining in the circle are one. So this is my Yuletide uh, podcast. I've done um, a podcast at this time of year for the last couple of years. I think partly because I find it a great time and a difficult time in equal measure, this darkening of the year. And we're all noticing in this hemisphere that the sun is just getting above the horizon 
uh, and not for long. So you get that lovely low winter sun, but it doesn't last very long. And in fact, if you go further north, you don't get it at all. It's dark. And, and that's a challenging time of year. The word Yule has three meanings, according to this great book by John Matthews, called The Winter Solstice. One is, is, is wheel. It's a Saxon word for wheel, wheel. Um, they believed that the sun was on some kind of a wheel and, and also they believed in the wheel of the seasons. Hence the wreath shape. People put wreaths on their doors in the shape of a wheel. And that this wheel stopped turning on the winter solstice, those three days of the winter solstice, when there was the, the least amount of light. Um, also, for the wheels of Odin's chariot, that was another, that Odin would be flying around at this time of year, collecting up the souls of the warriors who died. Um, or even Yolnir is another name for Odin. Yule is close to that. The other great meaning of Yule is to shout out. And apparently in Yorkshire up to the 17th century, at the end of the church service for Christmas, everyone would shout, Yule! Um, as a way of marking the end of the service. And it was a throwback to the, the sort of proclamation of, of the Wheel of the Year and a hope for fertility and fecundity um, for, for, for the spring. Uh, I really like that. I wish we still did it. Yo! Um, it'd be great. Um, so I was thinking about what to, what to focus on, and I, and I found that poem of mine that I've just read, The Circle. Um, I wrote it after going to Kalanish, uh, on the Hebridean Islands, uh, on Lewis. Uh, my wife's family come from there and we went up for a visit. And it's a stark landscape. Not many trees, hardly any. And you get ferocious weather. It can be sunny. I mean, we left Yorkshire at 24, 25 degrees in the middle of July. And when we got up finally to Lewis... It was about 13, 14, and they thought it was hot. Um, and so you, it was sunny, and then suddenly the like, squall will blow off the Atlantic, and, and you're in fierce horizontal rain and lashing weather. And it's incredible, um, an incredibly fierce landscape that alerts you to the fierceness of life. And this stone, 5,000-year-old stone circle, it's not like Stonehenge. They're sort of jagged and and um, have a powerful silhouette uh, to the sky. They're on a slightly raised point. And apparently it, they line up with all kinds of um, geographical features of the other islands. And like Stonehenge, we're used to measure the seasonality of life. And I was thinking that so much of the way more ancient peoples viewed the world was circular or spiral. Um, whereas we, in, in our modern cultures, are far more linear. There's this whole idea that life is a line. People talk about your lifeline and, you know, from birth to death. Whereas 
more ancient cultures tended to think of life as a circle and that we're all involved in this circle. And I was thinking, God, that's so much more healthy. That, you know, it's not all about going up and and in that linear fashion towards success and then what? Um, that, that we are programmed by the wheel of the seasons to be much more spiralled and circular. And so I tried to, to capture that in this poem and easily convene circularity that the managers of linearity deform into a triangle. I was thinking at this time of year with what, everything that's going on in politics, you know, we, we turn everything into a triangle and there's a pinnacle. And of course, they always put themselves self-appointed pinnacle that they sit at shrewd and cynical. But this is the great O of wonder not to be exploited for plunder, to sit in the circle of the seasons, to sit in a circle. I've done a lot of circle work, the way of counsel, to gather people into a circle in order to communicate with each other is a very, just setting the chairs in a circle is a powerful statement. And, and I've seen it work incredibly. I remember going to a theological conference and we decided that in the morning we would have uh, people just sitting in a in whatever shape they wanted really, but it was in serried rows, and that we'd have a discussion about, I can't even remember what the theology was now, but, but and, and it was a chaired debate and it basically boiled down to about two or three people sounding off about their theological point of view and why they were right and everyone was wrong. And then in the afternoon we did council around the same question where we had a speaking object, like a speaking stick, and the, the, the stick went round and, and the rule is you speak from the heart, you listen from the heart, you try and be as spontaneous as possible and respond to what you've heard by listening from the heart, by speaking from the heart, and that you are lean of expression. You say what needs to be said, and then you show up. Um, and the quality of the discussion in the circle was so much richer. Just so much more. It was like magic. And people who would not let out a peep in the morning's discussion felt free to speak and each person laid another layer of their understanding and by the end of it we were so much more enriched so this poem is about this circularity of life not to be exploited for plunder entered with listening and speaking but never both not listening and speaking which is what people try and do they're busy listening while they're getting ready to speak Never, simultane never simultaneously, as the soul arises spontaneously. Somehow when you engage in a circle like that, your soul comes to the surface and you become truth's hearth guest. And, and this, this stands that I would defend this space with my life when those who scorn its sway are rife. That's, that's important. Um, it, 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 it's, it's such an important way of exploring things and seeing life as a circularity is, 
is such a rich way to engage with the seasonality of your existence and of your life. And I somehow, in the poem, felt it had to be defended that, that the people who talk that terrible phrase, well, in the real world. Well, the real world is usually something that they've constructed where, where they can impose their worldview on everybody else rather than, like you do in a circle, listen to everybody else's and allow yours to be influenced. But I put in the end, perhaps we don't have to defend. Perhaps we just have to let it befriend, let the circle befriend the echoing spiral of our life's course. And then when the circle is done, those remaining in the circle are one. And what I mean by that, I think, is the echoing spiral of our life's course is this constant going around the wheel of the seasons, the wheel of the seasonality of our lives, and encountering often the same things or similar things or things that take us deeper. And this time of year, I always think, is a time when we slow down and take stock and ask ourselves fruitful, important questions. I always think of the Christmas pudding. My mum used to make them and she'd make them in the summer um, and she'd feed them uh, the Christmas puddings with, with brandy and, and um, they were rich with fruit and it was the taste of summer fruit in the middle of the darkness of winter. And I was walking with someone this uh, this week. Um, we were doing spiritual direction. And <clears throat> one of my neighbours organises a run in Sheffield called the Percy Pud. It's quite a hard run. And um, at the end of it, you're given a Christmas pudding. And he had some left over. And he grabbed me and he said, here, take this one. I know you haven't run, but you deserve it. And and my friend and I were reflecting on on what that symbolised that this was all the richness of summer and all the richness that we imbue Christmas with, all in this little pot that we open um, and steam and comes out beautifully sweet, the taste of summer in winter. And I was also thinking, I've been listening to James Rebanks reading The Shepherd's Life. Um, he's a shepherd from, from the Lake District and he was talking about when they harvest the the... Uh, fields the the hay from the fields in the summer if they can do it and it stays dry when they open it out for the cattle and the sheep in the winter you get a blast of the smell of summer all the wild flowers that have been um, caught up into the harvesting of the grass um, and then dried out you get this blast of the smell of summer and that's what I mean about taking stock that this time of the year allows you to think about how your year has been, how it's been for us as a society, the whole COVID roller coaster that we seem to be on, um, how your own personal year has been, what have you traversed, what have you been challenged by, what, what difficulties have you encountered, what graces have you experienced. And so I want to read you a, a poem I wrote a long time ago called Taking Stock to Help with this Process.
taking stock. How would it feel if, out of the darkening grey of dusk for clouds, as they lower themselves onto the backs of the hills, an unseen hand reached down and removed, at a stroke, everything that makes up the minutes of your life, and left you in this stripped yearning of a bare night. And then, in the cold, initiatory shiver of a new dawn, that same hand returned your life to you in discreet items, like clothing on hangers and shoes in boxes. What would you choose to keep for that expedition we call our life? And more importantly, what, finally, would you choose to leave behind? taking stock. How would it feel if, out of the darkening grey of dust for clouds as they lower themselves onto the backs of the hills, an unseen hand reached down and removed at a stroke everything that makes up the minutes of your life and left you in the stripped yearning of a bare night? And then, in the cold, initiatory shiver of a new dawn, that same hand returned your life to you in discreet items, like clothing on hangers and shoes in boxes. What would you choose to keep for that expedition we call our life? And more important, what, finally, would you choose to leave behind? Quite a few people have told me that they've used that poem either personally or with a group as a way of ritually assessing where they are in the seasonality of their life. For me, that idea that somehow a hand could take away... Um, there's a painting by Giotto, St Francis. Um, he is standing in the town square. He's just given all his clothes back to his father, who's furious with him for selling all his cloth. Um, and Francis has stripped himself naked and said he has no father but God. And the bishop, embarrassed by his nakedness, uses his sumptuous cope to cover up Francis's nakedness. And there's a hand coming out of the sky giving a sort of thumbs up and it's Giotto's way of, of saying this is this is God approving of what's going on here. Um, seems a naive way in some ways but I just thought about that hand and that there are times when the hand of fate or God or whatever you want to call it does leave you in the stripped yearning of a bare night when everything seems to be taken away from you. It might be a diagnosis of, of an illness or the loss of someone close to you, uh, a human or an animal, um, 
or a loss of a job or the loss of status, um, the loss of capacity. But there are those moments in our lives where that happens like like overnight. And uh, it really is painful. And in the poem it says, and then in the cold initiatory shiver of a new dawn. Well, that can be a, a, a long period of time. But I do believe that these moments are initiatory. They take us from one part of our life to another. And they're in that, that circularity, that spiral of our lives. And it, it's good to take stock, to think, if I lost what I have now, what, how would I be? Or what have I got now? If I look at it really in the hard, cold light of day, what do I have? Um, and what if it went away? And then I, I allow myself to think, who am I without all of this around me? And then that, that idea of it being brought back to you like shoes in boxes or clothing on hangers. And, and it, that image came to me from... I used to watch this programme called The Life Laundry. I might have mentioned this before. And it's been resurrected with Stacey Solomon. Um, and I can't remember what it's called now. I think it's on the BBC. And... Um, it, it's, it, it goes into people's homes, the, the new wonders, a team of them, and they look at everything they've got in the house, and it's usually because the house has become overwhelming and too cluttered, like ours does sometimes, and they take everything in the house, every tiny item, and they go into this massive great um, warehouse, and they put every item out on the floor, in categories and it's gobsmacking the family walk in and they cannot believe the gargantuan amount of possessions they have and and then they're asked to go through them and either recycle or donate or or put put in the bin because they're they're broken um and what would they take back because their houses are then um renovated and refurbished and made more practicable for them for the way they live what do they want to take back into this pristine lovely house uh, Stacey Solomon's okay the life laundry was with a woman called Donna Walters and she was a psychologist and she took this a lot further it's interesting how dumbed down the new one is she would she would constantly she do the same thing. They usually on a on a football field, with people's possessions. And there was one that I remember profoundly, and it was this man. Who was a travel guide? He was gay. He was a travel guide, so he literally would come home with a suitcase. He'd been off on some trip with a group, come back, drop the suitcase in the middle of his lounge have a couple of days and then go off again, buy a new suitcase, buy new clothes. 
and the whole house was just mounds of stuff and and it had become completely unmanageable and he was in bits and so she she goes out into this field with him she's looking at all his stuff underneath the biggest mountain of his clothes were two tiny boxes and in those boxes were the possessions the precious possessions of his grandma and his auntie these two women brought him up and they died within a month of each other and he was heartbroken and she kept saying to him what's this about what's going on here what what are you feeling now and she was tender and gentle and kind and he just broke like a dam breaking and he cried and he cried and she she held him and she said you're grieving you've never grieved for your your grandma and your auntie these two women who provided this safety for you and you run away from it and they renovated his house he got rid of so much of the stuff and they made almost like a little shrine in the house with these lovely possessions of his auntie and his grandma and they went back months later and the house was perfect and he had moved on he had taken stock he had looked at each item coming back to him like shoes in boxes and clothing on hangers and decided I don't need that I don't need that he'd made that amazing decision and more important what finally would you choose to leave behind and I think this time of year the turning of the Yule is a time when we descend into a darker place but but a beautiful darkness a lovely darkness I want to read you sorry I'm dropping all my books here I want to read you I've just bought uh, David uh, White my friend who I go on the um, the walks with um, he's got this lovely little book called Essentials and it's um, uh, some of his best poems um, with a little commentary um, next to them and and this I want to read you is what I think is one of his greatest poems it's called Sweet Darkness when your eyes are tired the world is tired also when your vision has gone no part of the world can find you time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own there you can be sure you are not beyond love the dark will be your home tonight the night will give you a horizon farther than you can see you must learn one thing the world was made to be free in give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong sometimes sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you sometimes 
It takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. And he has these lovely little commentaries. This poem was written out of the very physical and almost breathless giving away most human beings feel when they must let go of what seems most precious to them, not knowing how or when it will return, in what form or in what voice. That taking away of the light, walking through divorce or separation, through bereavement or simply not recognising the person looking back in the mirror, Sweet Darkness was written in a kind of defiant praise of this difficult time of not knowing, a letter of invitation to embrace the beauty of the night and of the foundational human experience of not being able to see as actually another horizon, and perhaps the only horizon out of which a truly new revelation can emerge. The last line cuts both ways, of course, we ourselves have often helped to make everything and everyone around us far too small by our lack of faith in the midst of a necessity, of, of a necessary not knowing, by all the ways we are not holding the conversation. There's a beauty in that poem. There's a starkness as there is in, in taking stock. Uh, he imagines that the darkness provides you with a much broader horizon. And that sometimes it takes darkness and the, the confinement of your isolation to make you realise that anything or anyone is, that doesn't bring you alive is too small for you. There are times when our lives contract. Our lives are contracted with this virus and it looks like they might contract again with this new Omicron. We're cancelling things, we are shrinking down our contacts to those that are most important, but there's something profoundly powerful about that. Who do I, you know, who could I not live without seeing? Who do I need to be with? And that gives you incredible information about who you are. Who most matters to you? So this podcast is an invitation to that process of taking stock of... of I love that idea that he says, um, in praise of the darkness, in praise of that narrowing down that winter creates. It creates it in the natural world, the animal world, the, the the flora and fauna, everything is shedding, shedding leaves, becoming a stark version of itself, a silhouette against the, 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 the darkness, uh, against the, the darkening sky. Animals are, you know, I watch the birds, they're feeding up there, they're preserving their energy. My chickens have uh, more hibernatory um you know, farmers are looking after the sheep in the fields. The cattle, all the cattle around here are now in sheds for the winter and you can hear them lowing and mooing. Um, there's a bringing in and a gathering. But there's also this invitation to prepare for spring. And, and we are being asked 
by the season, by the wheel of the season, to think about our year, to contemplate where we've been, what we've done. Has it been fruitful? There's this great thing that St. Ignatius encouraged called the examen and mindfulness. A lot of mindfulness practices replicate this. He encouraged people at the end of the day to think what has been um, grace-filled for me in this day? What's given me life? What, what has not been too small for me but has brought me alive? And what has shrunk me? What, where have I become stickily attached to things that don't bring me alive? Um, it's a beautiful process to do in a day but an even more beautiful process to do about your year. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. This is a piece I wrote engaging deeply in that process. It's called The Belly of the Year, and it was the year that I had my breakdown. And you can hear in this piece the the way we work these things out. The belly of the year. The belly of the year that autumn swallowed me, left me in the dark sump of winter, oily water at the bottom of the well. No dreams of gold cities or spice roads, just dark low ceilinged caverns. Populous with my old familiars, acting at times out of character and revealing the nature of the breach. Spring brought a ladder end, rung slippery with moss and spread stretchingly far apart. Don't climb too fast, they say. The goddess of growth has a sickle in her hand and she stands on the chaos and drama of dying winter's pyre. And that's where spring comes from, to my surprise, but still not my joy. The heat and green growing summer painted its length on my morning curtains with earliness and my attempted meditations melted in the crucible of anxiety, all all returning me to autumn's guts as they spill out in a redness of pavements and yet, and yet, a resolve to open the front door, to brave the belly of the red-leaved beast, to walk my way out, Solviture ambulando. It is solved by walking. That was a tough year. My dreams were not of gold cities and spice roads. It was all dark, low-ceilinged caverns and all kinds of old things that came from dreams from years ago came, came rushing back at me. And they were doing different things quite often, acting out of character, as I say in the poem, revealing the nature of the breach. In other words, they were showing me where this breakdown had come from, where my anxiety was suddenly appearing from. And, and, and spring did bring a ladder end, but the rungs, slippery with moss, spread stretchingly far apart. It was a real difficult year. The winter, the Christmas was tough and and I began to come off antidepressants and that was difficult. Don't climb too fast, they say. The goddess of growth has a sickle in her hand 
and she stands on the chaos and drama of dying winter's pyre. And that's where spring comes from, to my surprise, but still not my joy. I went to a conference and there was a talk um, by Andreas Schweitzer, a Jungian analyst, and he was talking about Carly, who is terrifying, the goddess who has um, a scythe in her hand and she's got the skulls of men all around her girdle and she's blood curdling. She is the destroyer. She is the breaker down. You know, and even in compost, it gives off heat as it breaks down. There is a natural breaking down in us. Don't climb too fast, they say. The goddess of growth has a sickle in her hand and she stands on the chaos and drama of dying winter's pyre. And that's where spring comes from. Spring comes from winter. It comes from this cold, dark, dying time. But it still didn't bring me joy. And even the summer was tough. It painted its length on my morning curtains with earliness. I kept waking up really early. And I tried to meditate and, and it just melted in the crucible of anxiety. It was so tough. And it spilled me out into the next autumn and a redness of pavements with the leaves. And yet, and yet, something had happened inside me that made me decide to open the front door, to walk. I started walking to brave the belly of the red-leaved beast, to walk my way out. Solviture ambulando. It is solved, that's what it means, the Latin. It is solved by walking. It is solved by walking. That was my, and, and in a number of these podcasts you've heard me talk about it, that was my um, way through and out of the darkest time. And I still do it. I've been for a walk today and it was beautiful in the, the low winter sun with Arthur, my dog, and we walked through the valley, um, and I was thankful again for how graceful that has been for me. So I wanted to share with you a piece from my Sheffield collection that I think I've finished. And this is how Solviture Ambulando, it's where it's taken me. It is solved by walking. It actually made me go out of my front door and go into the city and to explore the city like an artist looking for 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 found objects to create art with. Um, and it, it's had a massive effect on me, this walking, this what I call traipsing, um, a, a Sheffield word for, for just wandering around the city. And this is called afterward to a traipsing. So my collection begins with prologue to a traipsing. And then I've written an epilogue to a traipsing. I did 12 walks around the city, um, just just walking and then wherever I ended up going back there the next time. I did it over about three years. Um, and I've walked all over the streets of the city. And then I've been working on this over the last few weeks. This is, this is the sort of sum total of what I've come to from all those walks. But it's that process of taking stock about my city, about my life. So I wanted to share it with you. And it begins with a great quote from, from a, a book about the history of Sheffield. 
At Sheffield I found factious people who were endeavouring to disturb the peace of the country, and indeed they seem with great judgment to have chosen this as the centre of all their seditious machinations. Colonel Delancey, Deputy Adjutant, Adjutant to the Secretary of War, the 13th of June, 1792. <laughs> so it goes back, this radicality of this city. But this is my afterword to a traipsing. Twelve walks with much traipsing in between. An 83rd bus route, a round walk, walks into town, to Cuthbert's food bank, rivelling walks every day, walks in other valleys or up onto the peaks, all have flowed through my steps, my eyes, my ears, my voice. All conduit to a city's animating principle, its genius loci, its flesh, blood and bone, its rare and racy living. I carry in my innards, in my giblets, a feeling for Sheffield as a city, as a gathered multitude, as a multiplicity of villages, as a conglomerate of tribes, as a northern culture, as a way of being. We are the common people. We are the dog lying in South Yorkshire's corner, the mardy bums, the burning bright like an arc furnace at night. Don't be above yourself. We sing carols in pubs, not churches. We stem from the primitive Methodists. We have souls at home on edges, not in centres. We go an extra mile if you look us in the eye and not down your nose. We are testy about change until it stands proud and true from the dross. I live here. I've lived here. I've been artful here. Seen Joe Scarborough's brushstrokes down past the White Lion. Listened to Helen Mort climb Stanage Edge and Brave Division Street. Kissed the wife with Pete McKee and caught the dog with hobnobs in its gob down by Neep's End. I've stood at the sky's edge with my camera and noticed the echo of the pigeon loft square corrugation in the Blades Red Stadium. I've heard Richard Hawley sing to me about this precipice at the Crucible's round stage and seen Park Hill come to kitchen sinking life, Joseph and Mary, always no room, and Jason and Claire Middleton. She never married him, but we carry them, carry them all like a swollen river of love. Laura Page has walked me round the streets, camera slung, capturing Sheffield with F-stops and the right shutter speeds for a city caught in the headlights of forces it is yet to grasp. But we're doing all right. We are artists of the ordinary, artisans of the everyday, grinders of the good from the shitty, Turners of our pain into a grin, and our crucible is still hot. On your steep and sloping streets I've met you, but one picture I took holds my heart's eyes. Six young women on a day out with handbags and mobiles who asked me to take their photo. Three black, two brown, one white, the city at their back and laughing, laughing for the joy of being here in this Sheffield moment. Park Hill flats facing them, plushness seeping like a sunrise across their grim past. But I want to know, who will build this city for these women, 
Who will give them a future? Like the one I had when Sheffield was on the move and these flats were built for the slum cleared and those who could stand at the sky's edge and see a new dawn. I have heard the voices and held the fierce gaze of capability, of imagination, of hard graft. These walks are a pilgrimage of grace to a future built by them and not the myopic deal-makers who see only the inside of their wallets, the pounds in their accounts, or the next star scoop. These are not clichés before you have a go. I've met them, though they don't see it in themselves, at the charity balls and the do's at the Cutler's Hall. This is a walk of faith through the general cemetery, where I saw a teddy bear next to a fresh plot, these are there are people in this city who can make a cradle to carry us to the grave. This is their song, a hymn to this city of unpretentious radicals, of unassuming revolutionaries, of the common people. There are people in this city who can make a cradle to carry us to the grave. This is their song, a hymn to this city of unpretentious radicals, of unassuming revolutionaries, of the common people. That is my reflection on this year, on the wheel of this year, but also the wheel of a season, this season of... of of looking at the city that I've grown up in, of being with the city of Sheffield in its seasonality, its uncertain future, its movement through time into what will be next. And we don't know. But the people that I've met, that bit in the poem where I say... Um, I've held the fierce gaze of capability, of imagination, of hard graft. That's what I met. That's what I see in, even in myself and in the, in, the, in the creative people, in the people with vision. And, and that's what I wanted to celebrate this year, this Yuletide. So I hope that what I've said and the work that I've read and shared with you enables you to do that taking stock to be in that cold initiate initiatory shiver of a new dawn where you see what it is in your life that perhaps you need to let go of the things that no longer serve you the relationships that perhaps need to be shed in order to make room for the new that is to come or or for the things that have been around you that you've paid no attention to and that you suddenly see this needs attention this needs my commitment and willingness to engage again with whatever it may be there's a real beauty in that process there's a real beauty in this time of year. Um, we are not separate from the uh, natural world. 
we are animals. As I've said in other podcasts, we are part of this world. We are not um, above it. It's not there for us to dominate. We are, we are an integral part of it and, and need to feel that connection and how small we are. How insignificant when you start stand looking up at the the firmament at the night sky that at the moment is mirrored in the beautiful lights that we have on the outside tree and I look at those f lovely coloured lights and then I look up into the incredible dark sky and feel how tiny and insignificant I am and it sounds like a cliche and I'm sorry but, you know, it, it almost makes me feel ill to think about how small we are and what a brief candle I am. Um, I don't mean ill, just, just sobered, brought up short, made to really contemplate my existence. But at the same time, realizing that I'm able to appreciate it and experience the darkness of this season and that time for taking stock and to not get caught up into running around but to allow myself the time to breathe, the time to stop, the time to slow down. Who do I want to give gifts to? Who would I like to receive gifts from? What is my life? Where am I going? Who am I being while I'm going there? So I'd like to finish this with a poem I wrote quite a long time ago that imagines that we have within us the capacity to be what this poem calls a litany of nature to, to en encompass by going out of the front door, by allowing ourselves to be vulnerable to the vicissitudes of weather and the wonders of nature that we can become part of and it can inhabit us. It's called There Is One Thing Necessary. So I invite you to slow down, slow your breathing down, Slow your body down. Arthur's fallen asleep next to me. I can hear him breathing. Be slow. Be centred. Be calm. Be generous to yourself. And take this few minutes. There is one thing necessary. There is one thing necessary for life. To take a single conscious breath every day. To fill the lungs with an inhalation decreed by the mind, assented by the heart and executed by the body. In that one breath, B 
Be a litany of nature. Be the soaring of migrating swifts and the gaze of the watchful heron on the meagre branch. Be the unavoidable heartache of the falling leaves announcing autumn. Be the appearing of the rainbow on the leading edge of a storm which transmutes the season, darkening into winter. Be the panic-laden snow flurry that stops a city in its tracks. Be the priestly cold of a frost-sketched morning. Be the celebrant of hard winter's darkness. Be the pitch-black swirl of snow-melting water as it runs over river-bound lichen-clad rocks. Be the call of the owl hunting in the dimness of the wind-rustled copse. Be the grey-garbed land tinged with waxen ashes of freezing fog. Be the first indomitable heads of snowdrops squeezing through a hard-rhymed soil. Be the energy of infusing spring whose sudden green is fire. Be the so-called bindweed that produces the free white trumpets of the morning, nodding in a summer breeze. Be inspiration. Be expiration. Be inspiration. Be expiration. Be the life that is yours alone. A unique moment of breathing revelation. And a stark reminder to all life that you can take one breath that holds the turning world. That you can take one breath that holds the turning world. There is one thing necessary for life, to take a single conscious breath every day. And then to take another. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. I just want to add a final postscript, a Christmas present, by reading some excerpts from Frost at Midnight by Samuel Taylor Coleridge one of the Lakeland poets, one of the romantics. And it's there's a great programme that's on at the moment with um, Frank Skinner uh, and a, a woman crime writer, I think she's called Dina, um, from Glasgow. And they're exploring in three episodes on Sky Arts, Wordsworth and Coleridge's life. And she's in this cottage that Coleridge lived in, um, and, and they're looking at this poem 
and he's sitting there, everyone else is asleep, it's the middle of winter, and he's come down to sit by the fire with his little infant child. And he says, the fo I'll get it right. The frost performs its secret ministry, unhelped by any wind. The owlet's cry came loud and hark again, loud as before. The inmates of my cottage, all at rest, have left me to that solitude which suits abstruser musings, save that at my side my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. Tis calm indeed, so calm, that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. And then he says at the end, Dear babe that sleepest cradled by my side, whose gentle breathings heard in this deep calm, fill up the interspersed vacancies and momentary pauses of the thought. My babe, so beautiful, it thrills my heart with tender gladness thus to look at thee, and think that thou shalt learn far other lore and in far other scenes. But thou, my babe, shalt wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores, beneath the crags of ancient mountains and beneath the clouds, which image in their bulk both lakes and shores and mountain crags, so shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, who from eternity doth teach himself in all and all things in himself. Great universal teacher, he shall mould thy spirit by giving, make it ask and by giving make it ask. Therefore all seasons shall be sweet to thee, whether the summer clothe the general earth with greenness, or the red breast sing and sit betwixt the tufts of snow and the bare branch of mossy apple tree, while the night thatch smokes in the sun thaw, whether the eve drops fall, heard only in the trances of the blast, or if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. Or if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. So Merry Christmas, I love the Romantic Poets because they have this sense that nature is full of the spirits of the divine whatever you want to call it of the other and that that we are it is animated by that and those animating spirits teach us how to be in this world so may the animating spirit of christmas of yuletide may the turning of the wheel of the year and the beauty of this season and it's unbelievably difficult vexatious troubling darkness bring you life and bring you to a new year where I hope to speak again in this conversation which is the Anxious Poets podcast. I am the Anxious Poet, I'm Adrian Scott, may you be merry and happy and loved. Till next time.